Due to a publication ban in Canada on this case, we've changed the last name of the family involved, as well as any minors at the time. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In April 2006, Mark and Deborah Robertson were planning a summer vacation from their home in Alberta, Canada to Ontario. The year before had been tiresome dealing with their preteen daughter JR's rebellious behavior. They hoped a getaway might help reconnect them, but their daughter wasn't as keen about the trip as they were. In fact, she had something more sinister planned. Join me now as we take a look into a twisted tale of forbidden love and dark fantasy. You'll learn just how far one 12-year-old girl would go to claim independence from her parents permanently. Sudbury is a vibrant city located in the southern half of Ontario, Canada. Situated among a network of over 300 small lakes, feeding into the Georgian Bay, east of Lake Huron. Located in the heart of thick forest means, locals are accustomed to spotting an assortment of wildlife, including the occasional black bear. For Mark Robertson and his wife Deborah, Sudbury was the launching pad to new beginnings. Both had struggled with substance abuse in their pasts and endured rigorous treatment programs in a desperate attempt to reclaim their lives. Mark wasn't pleased where his life was headed, and in 1986, at the age of 23, he admitted himself into a rigorous 12-step program at a residential treatment facility for men. Although it was a road that was by no means easy, Mark was determined and managed to turn his life around completely. As he broke old habits, Mark also developed new ones, which included working out several times a week so he could maintain his newfound sobriety. His ambition to stay clean only intensified when he met the woman who stole his heart, Deborah. In 1990, Mark crossed paths with Deborah during a routine visit to the gym, but after only a few minutes of chatting, Mark knew she was the one. Deborah too had a wild youth that included drug abuse and treatment programs before deciding enough was enough. Like Mark, she too fought tooth and nail to overcome her addictions and in the end was finally able to gain back control of her life. And there they found themselves, both on the same journey toward healthier lives. A year after meeting, Mark and Deborah were married. After settling into a tiny townhome, Mark struggled to find work as Deborah did what she could to stretch their finances. But despite their struggles, they were happy facing every challenge as a team. In October 1993, Deborah and Mark welcomed their first addition to the family, a daughter they named JR. In 1997, the family packed up and moved 1,500 miles to the town of Okotoks in Alberta, Canada, 
where Deborah gave birth to their second child, Justin, just a few weeks later. While Mark and Deborah were overjoyed with their newest arrival, their toddler, JR, was ecstatic. Having a baby brother was way better than any doll her parents could have bought her. Instead, she had a real baby she could help feed, push in a stroller, and even play assistant diaper changer. Growing up, JR was the kind of kid that seemed to make friends easily, a social butterfly with a knack for standing out in the crowd. When she got old enough, JR showed just how responsible she was by watching her little brother when her parents worked. Mark had a job as a welder and Deborah cleaned houses, but no matter how much their lives improved, Mark and Deborah never forgot the struggles of their past and those who helped overcome them. Several times a month, Deborah spoke at Narcotics Anonymous meetings, hoping to inspire others to conquer the same battles that once ruled their lives. Outside of work, Mark and Deborah devoted their time to family. Weekends were full of fun activities, including weekend motorbike trips and family game nights. In 2003, Mark got a promotion working at an oil and gas company. It was just the break the family needed. And so Mark and Deborah packed up their family and headed to Medicine Hat, Alberta. After finding a modest home in the suburban outreaches, Deborah immediately began making new friends, people drawn to her extroverted nature. Mark's passion for his job, his depth of knowledge and his versatility in several different fields quickly won the respect of his peers. After moving, Deborah no longer cleaned houses. Instead, she opened a holistic therapy studio out of their home. Justin was especially thrilled with his new surroundings, making fast friends with six-year-old Greg, sharing a love of Star Wars and hockey. Often, the boys would play out dramatic reenactments of epic Jedi battles in the family's expansive backyard, staking out the treehouse as a defensive fort against imaginary enemy forces from the Empire. JR's bedroom showed her softer side, which included a pink canopy bed with a shelf overhead piled high with books and her favorite stuffed animals. On the flip side, JR was highly athletic, enrolled in judo classes, as well as a member of her school swim team. By the time JR turned 12, she developed some not so typical interests for a girl her age, such as Wicca, a modern day nature based pagan religion. What made it even more unusual was that JR attended a local Catholic school. Up until that point, JR had always maintained excellent grades, but over time, she began questioning some of her school's more religious teachings. In order to get away from what she began to consider a mundane life, JR and her best friend Alice began frequenting the Medicine Hat Mall, typically a place for teenagers to hang out and gossip. The mall was also a haven for the more standoffish goth crowd. Based on the punk rock trends of the 70s, the goth crowd in Medicine Hat painted their faces stark white and their nails black, their clothing predominantly black. For the most part, they kept themselves in tight-knit cliques. Their disconnected behavior served to either keep people away or draw in those who were curious. JR had never seen people with this kind of appearance before, and she couldn't help but feel captivated, not only by the way they looked, 
but also by the more artistic and theatrical roots of the style. She could understand the appeal and desperately wanted to join in on the culture. And before long, JR was sucked into the goth scene of Medicine Hat. Feeling disconnected from her parents, JR found solace online, registering on websites like MySpace and MindViz.com. In November 2005, JR joined a website called VampireFreaks.com, where she began describing herself as a 15-year-old girl. Although JR was only 12, she could have easily passed for a 15 or 16-year-old. As JR spent more and more time online, building a profile outlining her extensive likes and dislikes, she also continued building friendships in the goth community outside the internet. One friendship was with a 13-year-old girl named Carrie. Through Carrie, JR was introduced to a local gothic legend, 22-year-old Jeremy Steinke. Jeremy was well known throughout the goth community in Medicine Hat, often seen wearing a vial of blood around his neck. He claimed he was actually a 300-year-old werewolf. Jeremy's home life hadn't been ideal. His mother Jackie Mae was an alcoholic who often had various men over to the trailer home. Frequently abused by his mother's boyfriends, he found calling himself a werewolf gave him a sense of power and control he didn't have in his home life. Instantly, JR found Jeremy fascinating, sharing the commonality of parents in a world that didn't understand them. Soon they started chatting online in private chat rooms at vampirefreaks.com. JR went by the name Runaway Devil, while Jeremy went by the username Soul Eater 52. He was also a member of several other forums where he listed his status as Lycan, a reference to being a werewolf and that his age was 213. After hanging out for only a few weeks, Jeremy formally asked JR to be his girlfriend, even though he was fully aware of her age. JR didn't seem to oppose the age difference either, and they made it official. Meanwhile, home life for the Robertsons was only getting more complicated. Justin was now eight years old, requiring constant supervision something that continued to be left up to J.R., especially if her parents were out. The responsibility annoyed J.R. as her brother transitioned from the cute baby toddler stage to a more irritating little brother. On one night in particular, while Deborah and Mark were at an event, J.R. snuck out of her house with her friends, leaving Justin completely alone. When he discovered his sister was gone, Justin immediately called his mom. For Mark and Deborah, it was the final straw. They'd had enough of JR's unruly behavior and decided she needed a consequence that might finally sink in. Grounded for a month. For JR, that meant no phone calls, no concerts, and especially no Jeremy. But that didn't stop the couple, as they continued to secretly send messages to each other through vampirefreaks.com. So, um, yeah, do you truly feel that you've fallen in love with me? I really want to know. If so, all you have to do is tell me. You mean so much to me. I don't want anything to ruin what we have, so please tell me everything truthfully. Well, you see, I f***ing love you. Jeremy then responded to her with lyrics from a song. You're the blood that flows through my veins. 
You're the sun breaking through the clouds when it rains. My love for you is forever, as we die here together. We'll be together forever, till death do we part. Hope you enjoy. Love you tons. Later, Cuddle Bunny. When Mark and Deborah tried to monitor JR's time on the internet and couldn't access her accounts, they simply removed the computer from the home altogether. But that didn't stop her either. JR just found another way. The computers at their local library. God, I can't get over not seeing or talking to you. I yearn to hear your soft voice and long to be held in your arms. Wherever that might be, I don't care. But just to share the time we have together is to die for. And there is not anything that could replace the way you make me feel. Yes, I do love you. You're wonderful. Kiss. Mark and Deborah weren't the only ones becoming concerned with JR's relationship with Jeremy. Several of her friends remarked how uncomfortable they also felt about it. Even some of Jeremy's friends were disturbed. His friend Daniel once said to him, You're a grown man. You should have a job. You shouldn't be running around with young girls. But the couple didn't care about outside opinions. Jeremy frequently posted lyrics to his songs he composed on one of his blogs, many of which were for JR. As the drama with their family grew more frustrating, his lyrics grew more disturbing, and on March 9th, 2006, Jeremy posted another verse. The world I live in is dark and cold. The things these pitiful souls do seem to never get old. I wish for they would all die. The earth can burn. To hear them all scream, I yearn. Their blood should be spilled. For some of them, my heart they killed. But it is not that for which I wish they would die. But for this planet being filled with hatred, deceit and lies. If the couple wanted to spend time together, they'd have to sneak out, meeting up either at Jeremy's trailer or one of their friends' homes where they'd hang out and watch movies. A favorite of theirs was Natural Born Killers, a story about a couple committing mass murder as they traveled across the country, leaving only a single witness at every crime scene. Even more unsettling was that the movie was based on real-life serial killers, 18-year-old Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate, who murdered 11 people from 1957 to 1958. On March 13th, Jeremy messaged JR again after another secret get-together. How goes it? You were a sight for sore eyes and I miss you more than killing people. Can we get together and kill people together? I have a poem for you, and you shall see it when I see you. <laughs> yes, we shall. I miss you too. A large, large amount that cannot be contained in mere words. I wish to see this poem. There's something about your beauty that makes life with you like a movie. It's like a dream come true. The skies are always blue, and when I'm with you, I feel alive. You make me want to take that dive. I swear to you that I could never lie. Your soft, sweet lips could get me high. On March 17th, 2006, in a rare moment of freedom, JR's parents allowed her to go to a concert on one condition. They all go together. JR wasn't thrilled about having her parents tag along, but she agreed in hopes of seeing Jeremy. Soon after arriving, 
JR managed to slip into the crowd, disappearing altogether. After searching the grounds for her, JR's parents finally found her in Jeremy's arms. Immediately he bolted, while JR's parents dragged her off back home. This time she was placed under even heavier restrictions, which included all of her music and makeup being confiscated. The parents were officially at a loss for how to reach their daughter. She now seemed completely out of touch with reality, and the more they tightened the reins, the further it seemed to drive her away. They had no way of knowing just how deep into a pit of delusion JR would fall. On March 18th, 12-year-old JR sent off yet another message to Jeremy from the library. Sex, 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 oh, and love. Sex, 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 and love? What's that supposed to mean? That I miss you in an overwhelmingly large amount and love you. Also that I want to bang you, lol. On March 20th, JR sent him a message that would one day come back to haunt her. I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Well, I love your plan, but we need to get a little more creative with, like, details and stuff. On March 24th, Jeremy posted another song to his blog. Unlike his previous literary pieces, this one was far less ambiguous and far more ominous. My girlfriend's family are totally unfair. They say they don't really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume as their greed continues to consume. She is slowly going insane. She continues to think that I came into her life to help her out and to stop what they keep trying to shout. Their throats, I want to slit. They will regret the shit they've done, especially when I see to it that they're gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Just before Easter, JR's friends, Jacqueline and Alice, overheard her having a heated discussion with Jeremy on the phone, wishing her parents were dead, and him saying he needed to do this for her. Although they were horrified by the conversation, they hoped they weren't being serious. On April 21st, Mark and Deborah took the children out for a spin on their motorbikes, preparing for a road trip they planned to make to Ontario later that summer. In spite of their ongoing issues with JR, Mark and Deborah felt optimistic about spending time with the kids over the summer break. That night, Justin had planned a sleepover with his friend Greg. His rambunctious excitement stood out in sharp contrast to JR's mood. Still grounded, JR sulked, refusing to let her anger cool. On April 22nd, Jeremy was growing more restless by the minute. As his nervous friends looked on, he downed copious amounts of alcohol, including a special drink known as vampire wine, made popular with the goth crowd by Alice Cooper and the Anne Rice fan club in 1988 and 1989. Jeremy was also smoking large amounts of weed, doing cocaine and ecstasy. He then begged his friends to help him kill JR's parents. With all the substances he put in his body, they wanted to believe he was out of his mind. Ultimately, they refused. Infuriated by their betrayal, 
Jeremy stormed off into the night. As soon as he left, his friends locked the door behind him, fearful of what he might do if he came back. In the early hours of Sunday, April 23rd, Jeremy arrived at JR's house and followed her signals from the upstairs window to climb in through the basement window. In the pocket of his black hoodie was a knife. As Deborah and Mark lay peacefully in their bed, a soft noise whispered through the house. Having been on high alert from all of JR's previous escape attempts, Deborah got out of bed to check the noise. Dressed in a soft blue nightgown, she made her way down into the basement and turned on the light. And suddenly, she came face to face with Jeremy. But before Deborah could say or do anything, Jeremy lunged at her with the knife. As Deborah's screams rang out through the house, Mark leapt out of bed and tore down the stairs. There he discovered a black-clad figure standing over his motionless wife. Instinctively, Mark grabbed a screwdriver and charged towards Jeremy. Briefly overpowering him, he dug his thumbs into his eyes. As Jeremy slashed at Mark wildly, he fell back. Injured and bleeding badly, he asked only one question. Why? Jeremy's response? It's what your daughter wanted. Now that Jeremy had taken care of Mark and Deborah, there was only one family member left. While planning the attack, the couple had discussed what to do about Justin and agreed he shouldn't have to go through life without his parents. They decided they needed to take his life as well. JR and Jeremy went upstairs towards Justin's bedroom. After being stabbed several times, they placed him on his bed. JR then took the knife and rinsed it off in the upstairs bathroom while Jeremy fidgeted nervously downstairs. Despite JR asking him to wait for her, after a few minutes, Jeremy left the house and bolted down the street. Before leaving herself, JR changed her clothes and called the taxi at 5.25 a.m. Before the cab arrived, JR took her mother's debit card and went to a gas station ATM a short distance from her house. She withdrew money from her mom's account and returned to the house just in time to meet the cab. As she climbed inside, she gave the address of Jeremy's house. As the sun rose the following morning, six-year-old Greg next door was eager for his playdate with his best friend Justin. All day Greg had been itching to go over to the Robertsons to play with Justin. To pass time, he tagged along with his mom Sarah on a few errands, and finally around 1 p.m., Greg was given permission to call Justin, but when no one answered the phone, Greg decided to go over to the house and knock instead, but there was no reply. As Greg peered through one of the windows, he saw what looked like a body lying on the floor. Immediately, he ran back home and told his mother what he'd seen, but she found it hard to believe. You better not be lying, she told him. Just to be certain, Sarah ran back over to the house with Greg and looked through the window. There, she saw Mark Robertson lying on the floor, just like Greg had said, covered in blood. Terrified, Sarah pulled Greg into her car and parked it on the street as she called police. 
It didn't take long before the silence of the neighborhood was shattered by wailing sirens and barking dogs. Sergeant Brent Sikondiak was the first on the scene, joined by several other police officers. As they entered the house, it was like walking into a living nightmare. Mark was lying in the basement, right where Greg and his mom had seen him through the window. Deborah was found on the bottom of the basement stairs. Sitting beside her body was the family dog Julia, whining and trembling in fear. Blood stained every surface, including the ceiling. But the most chilling was upstairs, in Justin's bedroom. Blood covered nearly everything in the room, including his toys and a plastic lightsaber lying next to his bed. For the officers, the sight would haunt them for the rest of their lives. When detectives found a family photo in the living room and noticed a fourth member of the family, they realized someone was missing from the house. After speaking with the neighbors, they discovered the missing girl was Mark and Deborah's oldest child, their daughter JR. Not knowing where JR was, or if she might be in danger, police released a photo of her to the public, hoping someone might have seen her. Next, police contacted JR school counselor Sandra Richard, hoping for any other leads to her disappearance. Sandra gave officers access to JR's locker. Inside, they found several books and a loose leaf binder. As Sandra flipped through the binder, a page fell out. It was a drawing featuring a stick family of three burning, while two other figures watched, laughing off to the side near a truck labeled Jeremy's Truck. Sandra and the officers also found a note written in neat handwriting. May the hatred and anger built of blazing infernos fill you and overcome you. May the pains of a thousand tortured souls come upon you like a scalding blade and eclipse all other noble feelings. May the black overcome you and the pain never ending. Amen. The handwriting was identified as JR's and Sandra alerted officers that Jeremy's truck was referring to Jeremy Steinke, who was often seen hanging around the school. Officers immediately realized JR wasn't missing Instead, she became one of their prime suspects. Soon, hordes of tips began flooding in, and by 7 p.m. April 23, 2006, JR and Jeremy were identified as prime suspects in the murders of the Robertson family. Before too long, the first crucial tip came in from James Whaley, a local drug addict with a warrant out for his arrest. He was also a friend of Jeremy's. Despite his own legal troubles, James came forward, along with another one of Jeremy's friends, Jordan Atfield. James claimed to have seen the couple mere hours earlier at a party, where Jeremy bragged about killing Mark and Deborah, saying he'd gutted them like fish. JR claimed Justin gargled as he died. JR's misidentification as a missing person, instead of a suspect, allowed her name and photo to be released to the public. Laws in Canada restrict law enforcement from disclosing the identity of minors in cases like this. This inadvertently helped the investigation by making it much harder for JR and Jeremy to hide. And while the manhunt for the murderous pair was underway, the heart-wrenching task for alerting the family was left to Sergeant Glenn Motts. 
All across the region, the search for Jeremy and JR was underway. In Leader Saskatchewan, rookie constable Aaron Eward headed to a local Esso gas station at 5.30 a.m. on a hunch. The constable suspected the runaways would need to stop for gas at some point and guessed the route they would be headed on. After parking a short distance from the station and waiting for a few hours, his instinct proved right. At about 7 a.m., a truck with Alberta plates pulled into the parking lot as three teenage girls got out and hurried inside. When they came back out, they were carrying some water bottles, snacks, and a newspaper. As they pulled out of the lot, Constable Ewart began following from a distance and summoned for backup. The next stop the truck made was at a parking lot of a school. As soon as the truck stopped, officers suddenly ambushed the vehicle. Huddled under the truck canopy was none other than JR and Jeremy. JR and the other girls were arrested and placed in Constable Ewart's vehicle, while Jeremy was placed in a separate car. After spending the night at the leader sheriff's department, a caravan of police arrived by mid-morning to escort the suspects back to Medicine Hat. JR and Jeremy were both charged with three counts of first-degree murder. All of Medicine Hat were in utter disbelief. JR was officially the youngest person ever to be charged with multiple homicides in the history of Canada. Getting confessions out of the pair wasn't going to be easy, especially dealing with a minor like JR, who claimed she hadn't killed anyone. However, Sergeant Chris Sheehan managed to get JR talking by playing to her interests. JR claimed after coming home from a party with Jeremy, she suddenly came across her family's bodies in the home. She said she'd been unhappy with her home life, and the two had made plans to run away that very night. Sergeant Sheehan countered her story by informing her that police had found Jeremy's bloodstained truck in the possession of a woman named Casey Lancaster, who also happened to be with JR and the other girls during the arrest. In addition, Casey claimed JR was the one who ordered it to be disposed of, but Sergeant Sheehan wasn't buying it. Eventually, he managed to get more of the story from JR. In her confession, she admitted she tried to stab her brother, but claimed the knife slipped and that Jeremy took over. JR then wrote a note of apology to her parents. Dear my lovely parental units, I'm writing in response to the events of Sunday morning. A terrible thing happened, something I feel was all my fault. You must know I love you all dearly and are in my prayers. I wish peace upon your souls in the Summerland. To my little brother, I apologize for letting you hear what had happened, also for causing you any pain and for frightening you so much. To my parents, I hope you know that through all that has happened, I loved you the whole time. I wish I could take everything back. I wish it hadn't happened. I wish you were here with me right now, because now I have no one. I pray you can forgive me and Jeremy too, because he was under the influence of a mind-altering substance and did it out of love for me. He is most possibly the kindest person I've ever met, his wish being for my happiness. Through all the fights and hatred exchanged, I still loved you. I'm sorry my sarcasm was taken to heart. I never meant to harm you. I pray you can be at peace, somehow. Unfortunately, because JR hadn't been provided a lawyer during her interrogation, 
even though she specifically asked for one, the confession wasn't permissible in court, and the recordings had to be thrown out. In hopes of gleaning more information, Jeremy and Jer were permitted to exchange notes to each other, which were hand-delivered by officers. My lawyer tells me we're legends. Ha! Close to immortality, it would seem. Monday I'm being moved to Calgary. Sadness. I need to stay in contact. Jeremy replied the following day with a note that included a marriage proposal. You said you want to get engaged? Then here's a ring. Will you marry me? If so, then it's a verbal agreement. As JR and Jeremy continued to send letters to each other in jail, autopsies were being performed on JR's deceased family. The report showed that Justin had died from a knife wound to his throat, while Mark died due to blood loss from his collective injuries. For Deborah, although she'd been stabbed 12 times, it had been the stab wound to her heart that ultimately killed her. Initially, Jeremy refused to talk during his interrogation, which was held on Wednesday, April 26th at 8.40 a.m. But when Sergeant Sheehan implied that Jeremy was a monster, he broke down sobbing, claiming JR had asked him to do it. He then described killing Mark and Deborah. But when it came to Justin, Jeremy's story was different from JR's. He was adamant it had been JR that had cut her own brother's throat. Although he admitted he told her, we can't leave him, he claimed that initially he tried to talk JR out of it. He also admitted to being drunk and high. However, Jeremy refused to admit that his and JR's relationship was sexual and constantly skirted around the issue whenever it came up. On May 4th, 2006, Jeremy was moved to Calgary for psychiatric assessment while being transported. Sergeant Sheehan saw the opportunity and outfitted the van with a wiretap. He also had a constable dressed like a fellow inmate and placed him in the van with Jeremy. The constable was instructed not to ask any questions, otherwise whatever information was received wouldn't be admissible in court. Fortunately, Jeremy was talkative and made things easy for the constable. Not only did Jeremy speak in depth about murdering Mark and Deborah, he also rambled on at length about his relationship with JR. He went on to describe their dream of buying a castle in Germany and having a gothic wedding and getting tattooed wedding bands. Jeremy's talkative session in the van gave Sergeant Sheehan everything he needed to have him prosecuted for murder. On June 4, 2007, at Medicine Hat's Court of Queen's Bench Courthouse, JR arrived for her trial, escorted by two sheriffs. Forbidden from donning her preferred gothic attire, JR looked like an ordinary teenage girl with a ponytail as she shuffled into the prisoner's box. The public was so used to seeing the threatening images of JR online that her normal appearance was a bit off putting. When the names of her family were read out in court, JR openly sobbed. When the charges were laid out, she responded with a not guilty plea. Her attorney, Tim Foster, had done all he could do to avoid any leaks of JR's identity during the trial, but a brief time as a missing person had made his efforts an almost impossible pipe dream. It was his intention to paint JR as an innocent victim of an adult male predator 
but Crown Prosecutor Stephanie Cleary wasn't convinced and was set out to prove what she really believed happened. That JR was the mastermind behind all three homicides for the sole purpose of being with Jeremy Steinke. On June 13th, jurors were shown shocking photos of the victims without any warning or lead-in. The prosecution then called witnesses consisting of friends of both Jeremy and JR. JR's friend Jacqueline shook like a leaf as she spoke, recounting overhearing a phone call between JR and Jeremy where she asked him for help killing her family. Another friend Alice was also called in. She outright declared she didn't like Jeremy, calling him immature. She also stated she insisted JR break things off with him multiple times. As she spoke about Deborah, Alice was moved to tears, describing her kind and giving nature. When her testimony ended, Alice was the only friend to smile at JR as she left the courtroom. Most of Jeremy's friends admitted to either being drunk or stoned the night of the murders, making them unreliable witnesses. The only real solid witness out of the friends was Jordan Atfield. Not only was he the most credible, his testimony was the most damning. While on the stand, Jordan stated that JR had asked Jeremy to murder her parents, and that in turn, Jeremy had asked him to help, which he said he declined. On July 4th, 2007, in a desperate attempt to try and maintain an image of a scared and innocent victim, JR took the stand. She stated that all of her online messages had just been jokes and that she didn't really believe Jeremy would actually kill her family. During her testimony, JR's demeanor noticeably brightened whenever she mentioned Jeremy's name. At her defense lawyer's gentle questioning, JR stated Jeremy was the one who killed her little brother and that she was actually frightened of Jeremy. When it came time for the prosecution to cross-examine JR, they didn't go easy on her, asking why she never called for help for her family. And if she was so frightened of Jeremy, why'd she gone to a party with him after? It didn't take long for the prosecutor to render the defense's carefully constructed image of JR to shreds. Nowhere in the evidence could she find an ounce of guilt or remorse in JR's behavior. She concluded her cross-examination by stating, Your parents adored you. You couldn't have left that residence with any chance of success unless they were dead. The jury only needed four hours to deliberate and found JR guilty of all three counts of first-degree murder. On November 8, 2007, 12-year-old JR was given a maximum sentence of 10 years under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, six years in custody, followed by four years of community supervision in a group home. She was also admitted into an intensive psychiatric therapy program where it was determined she suffered from conduct disorder as well as oppositional defiant disorder. By the time she turns 27 under Canadian law, JR's record will be expunged completely, making it possible for her to disappear altogether. Jeremy wasn't so fortunate. On December 15, 2008, 
Jeremy Steinke was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. The recording made during his confession to the undercover constable and the letters he exchanged with J.R. gave prosecutors all they needed to convince a jury he was guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. The residents of Medicine Hat were finally able to feel at ease again, knowing at least one of the murderous pair had been put away for many years to come. But for the family members left behind, the world was now a frightfully different place. Those who loved Mark, Deborah, and Justin were left with the crippling knowledge that one of their own had been responsible for their violent and tragic deaths. On May 2nd, 2006, less than two weeks after their murders, Mark, Deborah, and Justin were laid to rest in Sudbury, Ontario, the place where the couple's dreams first began to take shape. 250 friends, family, and supporters all showed up to lend their strength. As one of Mark's best friends spoke about the couple, he said, They had the eyes and electricity every couple only hopes to have. That love never went away. The couple left behind a legacy of strength in the face of adversity and hope for others who might be struggling. In 2016, JR was reported to have been responding well to her treatments and was declared mentally sane, allowed to begin her parole. As of 2021, she was released and assumed a new name. Her whereabouts are unknown. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E